Good morning. I am Caitlin Sittler. This is my son, my eldest, Malachi. Um, we have been coming to Cross Point for about a year and a half now and recently became covenant members. If you would like to turn to 1 Corinthians 4, through 14 through 17. You ready? And I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, my dear children, for you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father through Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not to talk, but the power of those who are arrogant, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Thank you, Malachi. Thanks, Caitlin. Good job. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to be looking at those verses. If someone were to imitate you in your way of life, what would their life look like? What would they believe? How would they think? How would they live? What would they value, treasure, or see as most important? If someone were imitating you, what would they spend their money on? How would they use their time that they had been given? What lessons would they learn from your faith in Christ or how you love your neighbor from, from watching you? What, what lessons would they learn from watching your way of life in Jesus? It's not a question of if someone is following your way of life, it's who? It's who? Someone, if not several, are imitating your way of life. They are picking up things about how, how to believe, how to think, how to work, live, how you engage with and interact with technology, how you handle money, how you pray when you don't pray, how you speak of those who you disagree with, how you worship. Parents, no matter the age of your children, they are imitating you. Your toddler is far more observant than you realize. And your teenager, even if they are dismissive and not sitting at your, at your feet saying, oh, please expound upon your wisdom, mom and dad, I welcome it. They are picking things up far more than you realize. But it's not just parents whose lives are imitated. Your neighbor is picking things up from your way of life. Your coworkers, your your friend at school, the person who follows you on social media, your, grand, your grandchildren, your grandparents, the fellow brother or sister in the church that you're in community with or you serve alongside, the lost person who you're seeking to reach with the gospel, these are the type of people who are copying your way of life. And in this section to Paul's, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he writes to them in verse 18, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. And in this passage that Caitlin and Malachi read, you hear a tone of a father's heart. From last week's passage, verses 1 through 13 in chapter 4, that there was a tone of sarcasm. 
He had abiding sarcasm to try to communicate truth. This week, there is a tenderness, and yet truth is still being shared. And both of those tones are being used by a spiritual father to bring about gospel change in the Corinthian church, a church that he loves, that he desires to see flourish in the Lord, a church that he will continually call to repentance in this letter. Verse 14 in the CSB translation, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Last week, looking at that sarcasm, we might think he's just out to shame them, but he's actually out to warn them. And why warn them? Because Paul sees them as dear children. There's a warmth to that phrase, is there not? Dear children, if the people were not dear to him, then Paul could care less if they go off the rails and depart from the gospel. If they were not dear to him, then why is he going to write to them? Why is he going to spend and bother the time with that, urging and pleading with them to repent if they were not dear to him? If they were not dear to him, then Paul would avoid speaking the truth and love to them. But the Corinthian brothers and sisters are dear to him and precious, so therefore one action that Paul is taking is that of warning them. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it translates that, that word of warning as to admonish or instruct. The idea of the word means to counsel around avoidance or ceasing. It's telling someone who you love, you're on a course of conduct that won't lead to your good. It won't lead to God's glory, whether at the end of it or in the midst of it. Sometimes to warn sounds like, iceberg, right ahead! And other times it sounds like, you're about ready to navigate some waters full of icebergs. So be watchful and be wise. I don't know if it's a Midwestern nice thing or our flesh that is hesitant toward potential interpersonal conflict or we believe the lie from the world that to warn someone means that we don't love them, when in fact to warn them means we actually do love them. Whatever the reason, sometimes we are prone to avoid warning or assume, well, that's what the apostles like Paul did, or that's what pastors and elders do. And while elders and pastors most certainly do that as a function of their role, it's also what we, brothers and sisters in the church, including elders and pastors, do for one another. Here are three examples of verses that speak to this practice among the church family. Romans 15, 14. My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Instruct is the same word translated as warning in 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. Comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And then finally, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Instruct, warn, admonish. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these are actions we live out among our gospel community, and we warn one another for the same reason that Paul was warning the Corinthians. He was compelled by love, and he saw them walking toward and in the midst of spiritual danger. 
To see your brother or sister giving way to idolatry or self-righteousness, pride, addiction, and to see that and avoid the opportunity to instruct or, or warn or admonish reveals not a kindness in us. It reveals an indifference in us that we really, at the end of the day, could care less. We care more about, about how we feel or about us than we do in stepping into those potentially messy waters of one anothering. Our kids are now in their early 20s. When they're growing up, Heather and I gave warnings, instructions, admonishments. Why? Because we loved them. Because we wanted them to avoid the pitfalls of their pride and flesh, the pitfalls of the world, and because we wanted them to experience God's goodness and freedom in their life. And this is Paul's tone here, a spiritual parent seeking the good of his dear children. Verse 15, for you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In the context of this letter, instructors refers to a household role such as a guardian or a guide. It was someone who escorted sons to and from school, who supervised their general conduct, so for sure, there was a respect for this role, but the instructor also lacked the authority of a father. There was a vast difference between instructor and father. The, far, the father was far more invested into the lives and the good of the child than the instructor was. And in the same way, the child should be far more attentive and receptive to the words of the father. So Paul, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was the planter of the church. Paul had a unique role of authority, leadership, and responsibility among the Corinthians, which should lead them not, to, not only to receive his counsel and instruction, but also his way of life in Christ. Verse 16, therefore I urge you to imitate me. And in the arrogance of the Corinthians, did I just die? No? Okay, good. Sounded like it went out. I just figured with the flow of the morning, this is what was going to happen. <laughs> Anyways, uh, verse 16, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. In the arrogance of the Corinthians, they're probably thinking, Paul, why am I going to imitate you? Are you kidding me? If you'll remember from last week's passage, the Corinthians see, them, see Paul as poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, weary with, weary with work, and so on. And you want us, the church, to imitate you, Paul? Elsewhere in other churches, Paul made that same charge to imitate him and the leaders. He wrote it to the Galatians, the Philippians, the Thessalonian church. And so it wasn't just the Corinthians who got this message. It was a thread through his writings. He wrote this later on in the same letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. One author wrote, imitate me, though that may sound conceited. If Paul were not able to do this, he would be guilty of hypocrisy, telling the Corinthians to act in ways that he himself does not follow. So maybe you're thinking, I'm following and trusting in Jesus, but I could never tell someone to imitate me. Why not? Why not? What is it about your way of life in Christ that you'd be hesitant to let someone see or copy themselves? If the thought of someone following you or imitating you as you follow Jesus causes you to say, oh, no, 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 wait, not, not, not me, 
Look at that person. Look at him. Look at her instead. Please don't look at me. What area of your heart or life is the Lord seeking to cause growth in you? Because that's what gets exposed. If we're hesitant, there's something in our heart or life that the Lord is seeking to, to shape, to put his hands on, to transform. See what Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, gives it the complete picture of what Paul is saying. He's not saying, in me, you'll see absolute perfection of Christ. But he is saying that in me, you'll see someone who has been saved, is being saved by the grace of God, who's seeking by the grace of God, the power of the Spirit to follow and trust in Jesus, who is seeking to be devoted to and worship Jesus above all else, who's seeking him to bring him glory above all else. Paul is saying, I can promise you, you won't see perfection, but you will see progress in Christ-likeness. And where you don't see perfection, you'll see and hear of me and how I'm actively repenting and trusting in the Lord, running toward the Lord, not away from the Lord in those areas. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't see the call for your life to be worthy of imitation only in what you're getting right. In the same breath, may your repentance also be visible for others to see so that, you might be able, so that they might be able to imitate godly actions like repentance and humility. Parents, I'd encourage you to share with your kids in age-appropriate ways where and how you are walking in a posture of repentance, where you're asking the Lord to transform your heart. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And again, the Corinthians are thinking, eh, I don't think so, Paul. I don't want to imitate you. Bible commentator David Garland writes this as to how Paul is hoping the Corinthians will receive that message in verse 16. Garland writes this, They are to welcome being regarded as fools for Christ and as weak and dishonored. They are to recognize that all that they are and have comes to them as a grace gift from God and that they are not inherently extraordinary. They are to think of themselves as no better than menial field hands and servants awaiting God's judgment to determine if they are trustworthy. They are to rid themselves of all resentments and rivalries with co-workers so that they can toil together in God's field. They are to resist passing themselves off as wise or elite by using lofty words of wisdom or aligning themselves with those who do and to rely instead on the power of God that works through weakness, fear, and trembling. These actions and attitudes constitute the pattern of Paul's life, both in the present and as he had lived out before with the Corinthians. In short, Paul is a model of the wisdom of the cross, a model for what it looks like to live a gospel-centered life that sets aside the pride of man, that sets aside the glory of man, and instead seeks to make much of Jesus in his glory. Verse 17, this is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy's young pastor. If you're new to the Bible, First and Second Timothy are letters that Paul wrote to encourage Timothy as a young pastor. And in those letters, we see that familial, spiritual father-to-son relationship spoken of. And Timothy had proven himself faithful, trustworthy, and reliable. 
And in an effort to see the Corinthians shepherded and led well, to see them repent of their divisions, restore with one another, turn away from worldly wisdom, turn back to the wisdom of the cross, as an expression of his fatherly love, Paul is sending Timothy, an additional pastor, to the church to remind and teach them what Paul and the other apostles were teaching elsewhere in other regions, in other churches, because there should be continuity and consistency among New Testament churches. This is an expression of fatherly love to send Timothy to the Corinthians to correct, rebuke, encourage, teach, train them for their good and and their joy in the Lord. I love that Paul uses the word remind there. Like, listen, when Timothy shows up, he probably won't tell you anything that is new or different than what I said to you when he was with them for 18 months. Timothy will simply be there to remind you. This continues to be a function of teachers in the local church, reminding us of the gospel, reminding us of the word, reminding us of who the Lord is, always has been, always will be, who we are in him. I need to be reminded, you need to be reminded because we forget our our eyes and our minds drift Our spiritual enemy is trying to lead us into temptation. And our flesh is weak and the world's patterns are ongoing. And so one joy that this gathering is on a weekly basis, that any gathering, that when you're alongside two or three other brothers and sisters in Christ, in homes, in a church building, in coffee shops, all those gatherings are are an opportunity for us to remind one another of the Word. Remind one another of the gospel and who the Lord is and who we are in Him. These are all opportunities for us to remind. That's Paul's heart here. We see that in the final verses that we'll look at this morning. Verses 18 through 21. Now some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? The Corinthians are arrogant and don't believe Paul will visit them again. And in Paul's absence, the arrogant ones, their arrogance have only grown, assuming he wouldn't return to them to challenge or confront. But Paul reminds them, and Timothy will as well, that Paul will come to see you again. Notice that phrase, if the Lord wills. Paul lives in submission to Jesus. Paul does not live a self-willed life, but a Jesus-willed life. And such is his desire that the Corinthians would as well. That they'd not live self-willed, but lives instead that are led and directed by Jesus Christ alone. Paul is saying, I'm coming again, not merely with words, but with power. Paul wanted them to confront, wanted to confront this so-called gospel that was founded in human wisdom and human leaders that lacked any sort of real, supernatural, Holy Spirit power. In a sense, Paul is saying, your talk is cheap, Corinthians. Let's see if the gospel that sets aside the cross, let's see if it has any power to it. Let's see if this gospel that tries to find its footing in the, in the culture that is like sand, let's see if it has any power to which Paul knows the answer. It doesn't. A gospel that neglects the cross, 
that sets aside the resurrection doesn't seek to exalt Jesus, instead exalts human wisdom, it's no good news to us at all because it lacks the power to bring about transformation or salvation of the human heart. It lacks the power to demolish strongholds or demolish generational cycles of sin. It lacks the power to give you any sort of freedom from sin. It lacks the power to unify a diverse group of people and send them out on a unified common mission. Verse 19 again, But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Paul, the spiritual father, is warning them, urging them to humble themselves. Paul is not saying, fear me. He's simply an ambassador for Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. Instead, he's urging them, don't be so arrogant that you don't fear the Lord. Don't be so arrogant that you don't fear the Lord. Don't be so puffed up with your human wisdom that you don't revere and worship Jesus and see his ways and his, his thoughts, his wisdom higher than your own. Verse 21 again, what do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul is saying to them, you have a choice. What will you do with this word from the Lord? What will you do with this letter that's being read aloud to you, Corinthian church? Will you receive it? Will you reject it? Will you humbly welcome it or arrogantly dismiss it? Paul, the spiritual father, has one hope, that they'd repent, meaning where they disagreed with the Lord, they would agree with him. Where they'd puffed up with self-centered pride, they'd turn from that and humble themselves before Jesus. How the Corinthians respond will lead either to Paul coming in confrontation and rebuke or in a spirit of gentleness. And how they respond will ultimately reveal the condition of their hearts. I believe it's Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, that it talks about the principle of seeking to give both the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth in the midst of warning, instructing, admonishing, and teaching. I know we use this principle in parenting. I know it's also shown up in life in the local church. But according to John 1, Jesus came in the fullness of grace and truth. And so in warning someone, for instance, we don't want to neglect one or the other. So to illustrate this, I want to use a couple parenting examples. You have a child come to you broken and upset about their sin. Their hearts have been laid bare. They've blown it. They know they've blown it. They're fully aware of the consequences that they're now dealing with because of their actions. In that moment, do you lead with truth or with grace? You lead with grace. You remind them of the saving and sufficient work of Jesus on the cross. You remind them of how sweet it is to walk in the light and receive the Lord's forgiveness. You remind them of who they are in Christ, new creations in Christ, old creation gone. You remind them of the goodness of the good news. You lead with grace and you follow with truth. You don't neglect to share of how the truth is, how we've been called to live or flee from sin or pursue a life of obedience or that sin does have does have consequences you can't look at the cross and go well sin's no big deal no it has consequences it led to death his death we do have a real spiritual enemy 
seeking to devour and kill, and all these elements of truth. You lead with, with grace, though, because they've come to you broken, guilty, shame-filled, condemned, potentially. You lead with grace, you follow with truth. Second example, you have a child come to you unbothered by their exposed sin. And I doubt if they'll probably come to you with this. It's probably the other way around, right? But in them you see smugness, arrogance, self-righteousness, and indifference to the Lord and indifference to their rebellion. In those moments you lead with truth. That doesn't mean you have to be loud or aggressive. At times I was loud and aggressive toward my kids. That's ungodly, sinful, fatherly actions. Instead, we lead with measured, spirit-led, fruit of the spirit, self-controlled words leading with truth. And you also then follow with grace. Whether the, the sharing of truth leads to humility or not, you still share the gospel of God's grace and his rejoicing in their repentance. We would talk to our kids sometimes saying of, of how sweet it is to know the Father rejoices in our repentance. And whether that repentance is now or in the future, we are praying for now. But if your pride leads it to the future, the Lord will still rejoice in your repentance. And in all of those situations, whether we are leading with grace, following with truth, or vice versa, all those situations of warning, admonishing, teaching, instructing, we pray. Amen? We pray because the Lord is the one who changes us. The Lord is the one changing the person we are instructing, a brother or sister, maybe a child. The Lord is it's His power, not ours. And this practice of speaking of the gospel, truth, and grace to one another occurs not just in parenting. It should happen within the local faith family, among brothers and sisters in Christ as we instruct, admonish, warn, teach one another. This is what Paul is doing here. And how the Corinthians will respond will determine what Paul is going to lead with. Will it be the rod, follow with gentleness, or vice versa? And thanks be to God that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God upon that cross, and by his wounds we have been healed, paid the price of our sin in full, all our past, present, and future sin. He took our place, stood in the gap, died the death that was ours to die because of sin, so that whoever would believe in him, trust in him, might not perish but have everlasting, eternal life, no longer separated because of our sin, but joined reconciled to our creator through faith alone by grace alone in christ alone jesus christ will come again he promised he would and he is faithful to keep all his promises philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord for believers in christ we will bow our knees in joy-filled restful awe-inspiring worship because our King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is for us and who we've placed our faith and trust in, he is, our, he is the one who's come to rescue. And we will enjoy his, his presence in perfection for all eternity. For those in this life who have looked at the cross of Christ and Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection on the third day and rejected him, 
and said, I don't need saving. I can save myself. Or there is no God. Or I'm going to trust in this human philosophy over here. Or your knees will bow, but not in rest. In shame, in regret, in fear. For the eternal one, King Jesus, has returned. And with him, reward for those who've been found faithful. And rejection for those who have rejected him in the life and the time that they've been given. I urge you, I plead with you to trust in Jesus today. Even as we sing, as we, as we pray, as we gathered, as the gathered people of God, that we would confess our need for the Lord because he's faithful. He's faithful to respond to our prayer. And I pray that we would respond out of humility and out of worship today. Lord Jesus, thank you for what a sweet gift it is to be gathered together as, as the people of God. I pray that you bring people to yourself this morning, bring people to saving faith in you. Thank you that you rejoice in our repentance and our trust in you. It leads to a party in heaven and joy in your heart. Help us grow in warning, instructing, admonishing one another within the family of God. Give us a growing Christ-like, selfless, sacrificial love for one another. Lord, our desire is to imitate you. Help us to grow in our reflection and imitation of you this week and in the months ahead. For those who are watching our lives, may they ultimately see you, Jesus, and not us. May they see in us a people enjoying your grace, enjoying your truth, and being changed by your grace and truth as we live. We bow our knees before you, King Jesus, in humble, joy-filled worship. You are so good, and we are so grateful, and we pray this in your powerful name. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24 say, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful. He will do it.